This is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Good morning, everyone, and happy Wednesday, or Thursday now. (laughs) We are live here at WEGL 91.1 with another episode of It's All History to Me. This morning, we are joined by Dr. Paul Harris, a professor and former department chair in Auburn University's political science department. Dr. Harris received his doctoral degree from Auburn University and gathered 10 years of teaching experience at Augusta State University in Augusta, Georgia, and served for a year as a Frederick Ebert Foundation postdoctoral fellow at... The University of Münster. Yeah, yes, that's right. There we go, in Germany, before returning to the Plains. Here at Auburn, Dr. Harris has taught a wide variety of classes, including American government and a number of special topic courses on immigration, refugee, and asylum policy. Dr. Harris has also taught multiple different honors courses and previously served as an associate director of Auburn University's Honors College. Dr. Harris's research largely focuses on comparative immigration policy. However, his research also spans across other interesting topics that are in American history, including his work that we are focusing on in the second segment of today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dr. Harris. Oh, thank you for having me. This is an honor to be here. Oh, well, thank you so much. So to get our conversation started off this morning, could you share a little bit more about your journey that led you to earn a doctorate in political science? Sure. So um, I, like like you, um, I, uh, Victoria, I grew up in a military family, and um, I was in Germany. I had finished my uh, master's degree from Georgia Southern, and while I was in in, at Georgia Southern, uh, my professors had encouraged me to apply to Auburn's PhD program because they felt it was a good fit for me. They felt that the size of the department and so forth. Mm. And so I did. And uh, as fate would have it, I was accepted. And so that's what brought me to Auburn University uh, in the fall of 1992. Oh, wow. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What was your experience like during the year you spent as a postdoctoral fellow in Germany? Well, that was a wonderful experience. So a little bit of background. So uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in a military family. And so when I was in my early 20s, I had moved to Germany. Uh, I'm not I'm not uh, proud of, of this, but I failed out of college my first time around. Oh, I no. was not a good student, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, I just did not know how to study. Um, and so uh, my brother was stationed. He was a soldier in Germany. And my dad had just retired from the Marine Corps, so I went over to Germany to live essentially for a summer to to kind of figure things out. And then my father thought, well, why don't you just stay here? You can work for the military. And that's exactly what I did. So that was my first background in Germany. Mm. And then I spent four or five years there. And then I knew I wanted to go back, so I went back as a Fulbright scholar and then as my as a postdoc, which was wonderful because at that opportunity, I was able to teach courses oh, wow. um, and to uh, further my, my research. So it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing and a really neat way to uh, end up back there. It's such, mm-hmm. a, such a cool place. Yeah. 
So what motivated you to focus your research primarily on comparative immigration policy? Right. So uh, during my time at Auburn, I had a, a major professor, my dissertation advisor, uh, Jim Hollyfield, who's now at SMU, Southern Methodist. And um, he, I, I took a comparative politics doctoral seminar, um, and I wrote a paper for uh, – I wrote a paper on comparative immigration policy because I was interested in German, German policy, German politics. And uh, Dr. Uh, my professor at the time gave that paper to my Dr. Hollyfield, who read it, and he said, oh, we have absolutely got to meet. And, uh, and as a result of that, that's how I became interested in comparative immigration policy because when we say comparison, we're talking about the United States compared to another country, in this right. case, Germany. And uh, it just turned out to be a wonderful, uh, wonderful journey, wonderful experience. And as I know that you two and, and our listeners are probably thinking about research and so forth, there's a lot of starts and stops, starts and stops, and go backwards and go forwards. And that's, that's kind of sort of how it was. I started my dissertation topic on uh, taking a look at the guest worker issue or the guest worker policies in Germany, which are largely um, guest workers who were recruited after the Second World War mm -hmm. because of the lack of manpower, because the, uh, obviously the war, you had you know so many German men who were killed or mm -hmm. prisoners of war. And so the German government established a guest worker policy for Turkish uh, immigrants wow. to come to the country. And so I, I, I initially was going to write about that. But when I got to Germany on my Fulbright, um, I met with my German uh, professor, and he suggested that there was a little-known policy that was happening, and it was Russian-speaking Jews who were leaving the former Soviet Union and they were immigrating to Germany mm. right at the right at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, wow. and so th this was really wonderful. It, I, I was like an investigator, uncovering yeah. everything. This is pre-internet, and so I was I, I read a document, uh, one article, and then I found a name, and then I went to the yellow pages or the white pages <laughs> at that time, uh, and I found a name, and I called up. Uh, this and it's wonderful. I called up the social worker in Berlin, who was actually uh, a U.S. citizen who had immigrated to to Germany, and we knew some of the same people. It was just an incredibly uh, uh, small world story, and she was the one who provided me the initial information, uh, which led to my eventual uh, dissertation wow. and publications. How cool! That's yeah. a great great journey. Yeah, yeah, sure was. Yeah. One last question before the ad break. How does your work in and outside of the classroom connect to our season's new theme of bridging the past and present? Well, you know, obviously, uh, I'm a political scientist, and we're often fond of saying that, you know, you can study history without a knowledge of political science, but you cannot study political science without a knowledge of history. And that right. is very, very important. So much of what I do and so much of what my colleagues do um, are we incorporate the history because we we, ha we learn from our past. So obviously I teach American government, so we're going back in history. We're taking a look at the founding documents. 
this semester I'm teaching uh, global politics and issues, and, and, and today and yesterday, uh, two days ago, we were going through history. How did we get here? And I think that's the important thing from past to present, understanding the lessons. What did we do? How did we get here? Because then we situate ourselves, and then we have an idea of where we're going to go. So, right. Yeah. yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and yeah. Have to know where we've been to know where we're going. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. We're going to take a two-minute ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Welcome back to It's All History to Me. As we mentioned at the top of the hour, Dr. Harris's work is not only limited to the field of comparative immigration policy. In fact, he has done a variety of fascinating research projects on subject areas that tie more closely to American history in general, including a fascinating book into the look of one Auburn University, then called Alabama Polytechnic Institute, 1926 and 1927 graduate Captain Robert Posey of the U.S. Army. Robert Posey was a part of the World War II military team deemed the Monuments Men, who are part of the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives officers under the American Committee on the Protection and Salvage of Artistic and Historic Monuments in War Areas. This elite team was tasked with the responsibility of, of quote, promoting preservation of cultural treasure, treasures in war-torn Europe and Asia. How did you first find out about Captain Posey and the other Monument Men's significant work? Right. So this goes back to my interest in uh, Germany. So I had recently, so as academics, you, uh, when I was promoted to full professor, um, I had spent my, essentially my entire career up to that point working on immigration issues, which was wonderful. And um, I met with my dean at the time, and he had suggested that, uh, well, now would be a time, if you wanted to, to take a look at a different uh, a topic. Mm. Um, you're free to choose whatever you want. But he, I, he put that bug in my ear. And I had always been interested in the United States Army occupation of Germany in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. Right. And specifically, I was really interested in the time period, 1945, May 1945, um, up until the adoption of the German Constitution or West German Constitution in at September of 1949. Those four years were very critical years. Uh, and so I started to do some research taking a look at just what the U.S. Army was doing. So in the area where I live, so a little bit background, uh, my, uh, I, was, I, I worked as a civilian uh, for the Army in the 80s in Wiesbaden, Germany. And uh, in that area, that was a, a large, and it still is, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a city with a large number of American service members and family members. And so I was looking at just the at the occupation and what they were doing, denazification and providing services and helping feed people and so forth and so on. And then I stumbled across a, uh, some I interesting information about monuments men and protecting art and all of that. And then I was very curious about that and I started reading more and more about it. And that's where I found Captain Posey. Wow. He was one of the monuments officers in Germany at the time, and that's when I started to uncover the story of, of uh, Robert Kelly Posey. Yeah, that's so fascinating, definitely, yeah. and a really, really amazing story. So what were the sources that you used to piece together Captain Posey's contributions? Great. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question here. So uh, what, what I first did, uh, I was going through 
uh, I was going through first secondary documents. I read a, I was reading uh, biographies of General Lucius Clay. He was the military governor of, of occupied Germany uh, during that time period, 1945 to 1949. And uh, in, in the interviews that he had, he had talked about his relationship with the monuments uh, team or the MFANA, the monuments men and women. There were women, in, of course, involved. And from there, uh, I then took a look at uh, um, original source documents. Um, there is a wonderful database called it's fold3.com. It's part of ancestry.com. And there uh, you have original uh, uh, documents, orders, uh, memos from uh, memos from. Uh, from various uh, uh, politicians and so forth. And there you found, that's where you started to piece together everything. And, and it became really fascinating. It was an incredible journey for me. Um, and and, my, and I, I remember in 2014, 2015, and 2016, really just really diving into all of this. But by uh, 2017, I was, I, was not a, I was a full-time administrator in the Honors College, mm-hmm. and I realized that um, I really needed, I couldn't devote as much time as I wanted to, um, because typically we want to write books about this. But I thought, well, maybe I can get an article out of this, oh, yeah. and, that's, and that's what I wanted to do. So that's where, that's where the, the interest came. The, the documents that I used were, of course, secondary sources, primary sources, and then also family members, oh, wow. uh, which was wonderful. I reached yeah. out to um, Captain Posey's son and a daughter-in-law who live in uh, Scarsdale, New York. So it was, wow. it was an incredible. I made a trip up there. It, yeah. was, it was really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And it's such a great combination. And neat, too, that it's the, like, the length of the piece is what kind of dictated what sources you pulled from there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But ideally, I, I, I do believe this will come into a book project. It will be something a little different. It won't focus primarily on, on Captain Posey. But I'm working on an, another project with one of his subordinate cap, one of his subordinate lieutenants who was working in, an, in another city in Germany. Right. That, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. When was the moment that the U.S. government decided that it was important to have an entirely entire military division responsible for the quote provided lists and reports on cultural treasures? to military units, worked with the Civil Affairs Division of the War Department, and proposed the establishment of Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section. Yes. So what happened, even even prior to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, the United States, we, we were, the, the war was on the horizon, and everyone, we saw that. So the United States uh, Natural Resources Planning Board had established a, a committee on cultural conservation. Mm. The Japanese attacked, obviously, and then uh, 1942, there was planning, and the there was planning made for this. But of course, we were fighting a obviously a, a, a world war. We were fighting in the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then by August of 1943, um, a commission uh, called the Roberts Commission, named after uh, <coughs> 
Chief Justice Owen Roberts was established, which then took a look at putting together a special unit called the MFANA, the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives section of the War Department. Remember, this doesn't belong to the Army or even the Air Corps or uh, or the uh, Marines. It is the War Department. And what it was, a um, it was a group of men and women who were largely uh, museum curators, historians, architects, a- academics, individuals who had a- an expertise in cultural preservation, not only movable works of art, meaning paintings and sculptures, but also stately buildings such mm-hmm. as churches, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, for example, right. or the Cologne Cathedral. And this group of about 350 men and women, by the way, not just in the United States, but also French um, and, and, the United, and the United Kingdom, British, um, were deployed to war areas, okay? Mm-hmm. And so we had, we had the MFA&A, the Monuments Men, they were working all in Europe, but they were also working in Asia. And uh, it was just an incredible, uh, if you think about the values of, of a country, right? right. We're, we are, in 1943, we are in an existential threat for our existence. Mm. I mean, we really were. I mean, in the sense that, uh, that had, had, we, had we not defeated Imperial Japan, had we not defeated Nazi Germany, um, the world would have been a lot different. Certainly, uh, I don't think there was a fear of, of an invasion again. But the point is, is that we were in an existential threat, and yet we found it, and this says a lot about the values of, of our country, that we found it a special unit that was designed to rescue art that was stolen by, by, the, by the, the Nazis uh, and also help to restore buildings that were damaged in the war, okay? Mm-hmm. And it was an incredible, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it now, and I think about, gosh, there's so much to be proud of, and that right. certainly is one thing to certainly be proud of mm-hmm. at, at that. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, that's how it started. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of uh, pulling more into Captain Posey's story now, Mm -hmm. as you discuss in your research, most of the other soldiers on the Monuments Men team were Ivy League graduates. How did Captain Posey get discovered and asked to be a part of the team? Right. That's that's a great question. So that was the hardest thing to put together because Mm -hmm. what would happen is that the the War Department would request names of, of the curators. And, of course, these were names that were well-known within the National Museum, uh, the National Gallery of Art and various mu- Museum of Modern Art and various other uh, art institutions. So those names came straight up. But what, what, the, what the, the Army was looking for, because many of these, let, let's back up, many of these monuments officers, monuments men, officers and enlisted, many of them had no f- military background, uh, no bearing, okay? okay? They, they, were, they were in their mid-30s, some were in their 40s, and then they were drafted into service, mm-hmm. okay? But um, the General Patton, who was uh, the commander of, uh, of the of First Army, General, I'm sorry, the Third Army, General Patton's army, um, 
he was a very, obviously, a military leader, and he wanted someone on his staff that understood that. And Captain Posey had was a commissioned officer from API from Auburn, and he had held his commission during the peacetime. He was a lieutenant for almost 20 years mm-hmm. before then he was brought into service and then promoted to captain. And his name came up because he was a well-known architect and there was an architect who was responsible for putting the name. His name is Henry Newton, also a fascinating figure. And Henry Newton had put his name up as someone who would not disappoint, who's someone who would work well with, uh, with soldiers, someone who understood that, someone who was uh, not afraid to, to uh, you know, that, that, that felt comfortable in the, in the presence of soldiers. Right. And that's how he was selected. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he had that combination of the background in architecture and the military experience, which the rest of the group didn't have yet, was that military experience. Correct. And while he was at Auburn, while he was an ROTC cadet in the, in the Army, he, he excelled. He, he uh, according to his son, um, he, like many Alabamians at that time, they were poor. And according to his son, uh, his older brother was supposed to come to Auburn, and and Robert uh, uh, Robert Kelly was was supposed to uh, stay at home. But uh, Kelly, Robert Kelly, or Kelly did what did so well in school that he actually came to Auburn on a on a scholarship, mm-hmm. and because of his ROTC scholarship, he had a uniform and he had food, and right. that was and those that came for, directly from his son who. Yeah. You know, so that was really interesting about that. That is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Could you tell our listeners more about Captain Posey's most significant moment as a part of the Monuments Men? Right. So th- this is an incredible. St- this is an incredible story. And I want to go back to the first question that you'd asked me about uh, sources. So here's what happened. Um, the one of the the main sources that I found and that I was able to tell tell the story was Captain Posey had an enlisted assistant. An enlisted person is is that is just that he's not an officer. His name was Lincoln Kirsten. Kirsten was a um, Lincoln Kirsten grew up. He belonged to a a very uh, prominent Boston Brahmin family. He was a Harvard graduate. He was very uh, engaged in the arts, um, and Kirsten um, had a had a reputation, had a, a cultural reputation prior to the war. He was writing, and while and while during the war, Kirsten was uh, was assigned to Captain Posey, and throughout the time dur- throughout the war. Kirsten would actually write articles for magazines, for Town and Country, Hound and Horn. He would write various articles documenting what they were doing. He would just tell the stories. There was nothing classified with all of this, but it was almost like a real-time thing. And what I started to do was to start reading Lincoln Kirsten's accounts. And Lincoln Kirsten made made a wonderful account of how they – found a former member of the, the Germans call it the Kunstschutz, the art protection unit. They were not art protectors. They were thieves. Mm. Um, they found a, a member of the, of, the, of the German art protection uh, unit who was responsible for, you know, stealing and uh, a, 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 a 
paintings from the Louvre and from uh, from uh, uh, museums all around France, and that and those paintings went to Hermann Goering. Mm. Okay, and uh, so while they were while they were in Germany at the time, this was the war was still raging. Uh, Kirsten, who spoke French, um, came upon this former uh, uh, th- this major. Um, uh, Bunyas, Herman Bunyas, B-U-N-J-E-S, Bunyas, that's how they pronounce it. And Bunyas just assumed that they knew where all the art was. And they were looking for a, a very significant piece of art called the the Mystic Lamb, which was a, a Van Dyck uh, uh, painting. And it was it was really considered one of the one of the, the most important uh, paintings, and it's a it's a triptych. It's a massive painting. It's in it's it it, it, it goes. It's like 12, 12 feet by by six feet. Massive, and and the Germans took it. They took mm-hmm. it from uh, Ghent, from Belgium, and they were really looking for it. That was the most important cultural piece in Belgium. Right. And uh, Hermann Bunyas just assumed that they knew where it was, but they didn't. Mm. And he said, oh, it's in a mine in Alt Alsay in Austria. And so they were going, oh, my goodness. And so they w- desperately wanted to get to the mine. Right. But the war was still raging in Europe. And there was no there, – there was – who knew where they were going to be stationed because they were they – were, moving into Germany. They were fighting their way across Germany. And who knows, were, were they going to wind up in Berlin? Mm-hmm. But as fate would have it, and as the, as it worked out, by uh, April of 1945, the, the war was thankfully winding down. Mm-hmm. Um, they received orders to go into southern Germany, into Austria. And it was there that they made the big find. Captain Posey and Lincoln Kirsten. Incredible. Yeah, that really is incredible. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was so fascinating reading about the research that you put together with this, that it was really mere happenstance and a well-timed toothache that ensured that Posey was connected to that German source who informed him and his colleague of the location of the stolen art. Right, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So this vital fact, was it something that was like written down by uh, the the soldiers? Lincoln Kirsten, yes. Yeah, yes. That's, that's how I... So here's okay. what, this is how it worked out. You're historians, right? And, and what we have to do, we always have to make sure we're, we got we have to get our facts straight. So right. I came across I came across the discovery in an article that Kirsten wrote. Uh, again, like I said, Kirsten wrote so much, and Kirsten is writing in I believe it was in Town and Country, but I'm not sure. And he's writing about how he and Captain Posey, and this is after the fact. I think this was probably in 1946 or so when he's writing this article. I'd have to go back and check. But he he wrote about the incident that I just told you about, how he had met uh, met this dentist whose son-in-law, Herman Bunyas, was a, knew where the art was and so forth. Oh, by the way, uh, Kirsten spoke French. Bunyan's didn't, and uh, Posey had learned a little French but didn't speak it fluently. So Kirsten is speaking French to Bunyas, who is a German, who's telling him where the information is. So what I did is, and I said, well, I've got to, I've got to find a, 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 an original source for that, and I was able to find the source because every. Every two weeks, the monuments officers, Posey and Kirsten, they were required to write a, a, a report every two weeks mm-hmm. that went to the command, okay? And in that report, and we, we have the date and we have the time when they found that out. So we knew, we knew that uh, everything, everything that Kirsten wrote in, in, uh, in these accessible public magazines, mm-hmm. all of that that he wrote 
could be verified in the documents yeah. themselves. Right? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, so the intersection of the different right. sources to kind of confirm and it's, it's It's incredible. You're historians, yeah. and you're, you're like a, a detective, or you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to under, uh, 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 solve a puzzle. And I, I mean, you can probably feel the enthusiasm yeah, in the voice. Yeah. That is something that, gosh, I, you know, I so wanted to continue to do that, mm. but I had my responsibilities in the Honors College, right. and so... Um, <laughs> And so I had to kind of put that to put that to a, put that aside. But yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to it. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have to ask, what are your thoughts on the movie? Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> so I own the movie. Um, I, I I enjoy it. I think yeah. it's I think it's incredibly entertaining, and I, I certainly like Matt Damon and and George Clooney. But uh, the movie is just that. It's um, it is a what well, it's a, a a reenactment. Uh, some of it is historically accurate. Some of it isn't. For example, in the movie, the character that that Robert Kelly Posey, uh, Robert Kelly Posey's character was played by Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Lincoln Kirsten's character was pay, played by Bob Balaban, who is. They're they're both comedians, obviously, and they played that role in a in a in a comedic a comedic role, and it was again a very entertaining movie. But they were they were not comedians. Robert Kelly Posey was a very by the book, you know, by all accounts from his father, you know, a very by the book, mm-hmm. uh, military bearing, serious minded. You know, architect, army officer, Lincoln Kirsten. Again, uh, Lincoln Kirsten was not had no military bearing, even though he was in the service. But he, but he, you know, they, it was there was no joking around. Right. In, in the film, there's a lot of joking around. And then at the very end of the film, you see they're rescuing. They're they're trying to get out of Austria with the art and everything. That that didn't happen because mm-hmm. the Russians weren't in, in that part of Austria. The Russians were in Austria, but they were not in in Alt Alsace. What we did do, what what we did do, in other there were other mines uh, in which eventually became Soviet occupied Germany. That we we moved the art out because what we did we we took the art out and and whatever whatever there and then we moved it to what we call central collection. Mm. A- points in, in, in cities like Wiesbaden, Germany, Munich, Germany. And what we then had to do was find out who belonged, what, where did these paintings go? Where did these ceramics go and so forth? So that's, the, the movie was wonderful. I enjoyed it. Uh, watch it. Uh, it's, I think it's streaming. On, it is streaming on Netflix. Um, but, but perhaps those who, who watch that movie would be more interested in, in the good work that, that the men and women did. Right. Right. There. right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And neat too that, so it was, Posey was told by, was it, was it Johnson that, uh, he needed to be the one to go on the plane to Belgium with the Right. Attack? Yeah. So that's a wonderful, yeah. I'm glad you, you brought that up. So, uh, General Eisenhower uh, eventually Eisenhower, became yes. a president. That's fine. Uh, was the the supreme uh, he was the supreme commander mm-hmm. so he was the supreme commander of all forces in Europe and uh, and so the the by the way all of the art that was found what were, were in impeccable conditions I mean mm-hmm. the, the the Germans uh, the, the Nazis were bad but one thing they were really good at is they they knew art that's why they wanted it they wanted to collect this art that's why they stole the art they were you know, they 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 were very cultured 
uh, murderers, so to speak, if you if that makes any sense. Uh, but but that's what it is. Um, you know, you had someone like Herman Gehring who had an insatiable appetite, not only for food, he was very, very <laughs> large, but he also had an insatiable appetite for art. And they simply just stole it. You know, they, that, that's what they did. At, but they made sure that uh, while the war was going, they had buried him deep in these salt mines. They had, they, had, uh, uh, they had painters who were making sure that none of the, they were stored very well. In fact, they were in better condition. Uh, the, the Mystic Lamp, the, the, the big art piece, was, uh, was in better condition after the war than when they had, oh, because wow. they, had re- they had restored mm. some of it. So right there. So it was, um, it was a, uh, a, a very big uh, undertaking right there. And so be- since Posey found it, uh, he had the honor of returning the yeah. uh, thing. And um, when, he, when he returned it, uh, he, it would, took a little bit of time to get there because his flight was delayed and so forth. But when he returned it, uh, and this is th- these are from Posey's own words, that's what the Belgian said, oh, it's in better shape than it was before. That's mm-hmm. how we know about that. Right. And uh, as a result of that, you know, Posey um, received the Belgian Legion of Honor. And, of course, he also re- uh, received the, the French Legion of Honor. And... Um, I, I, I visited his gravesite up in Birmingham, and you see that right there on his gravesite. Wow. It's quite moving right yeah, there. Yeah, that is yeah. moving. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. We're going to take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Good morning, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. This morning, Sophia and I have been joined by Dr. Harris, and for our next conversation, we're going to talk about some of the current research that he's doing. All right, so Dr. Harris, a professor in the political science department here at Auburn, is working alongside a German colleague to research the work of John David Skelton, another monuments man, who was assigned to uh, Würzburg in 1945 in Germany. Through his outstanding dedication to the priceless artwork of the region, Skelton saved the Tipolo frescas in the residence, a project that he began in 1945 but did not reach completion until 1987. So how did you first discover the work of John David Skelton? Yes, right. Well, so um, John David Skelton was uh, assigned to the, uh, the, that part of Germany is called Mein Franken, Mein Franken, which is like, uh, it's an area, mm-hmm. like the Appalachia, right? Okay. And so John David Skelton was a, a he, now he, unlike Posey, was an art curator. He mm. He had a long history. He was a Yale graduate. He spoke fluent French. Um, he had traveled extensively. <clears throat> excuse me. He had traveled extensively in the 1920s to France. He knew he knew what was going on, and incidentally, he had he and the writings that he wrote and the letters he wrote home. He did not want to be in Germany. He wanted to stay in France, but he was assigned to Würzburg, Germany. Mm. Right in uh, in May of June of 1945, Würzburg, Germany, like so many German cities, were were bombed mm-hmm. continuously by the Allies. And so, what was happening? Um, the residents, which uh, Würzburg is a city full of of, of Baroque uh, palaces, uh, the residence is a Baroque palace, right. and you can imagine the, the you know the the German Baroque and even the Rococo. This beautiful. 
paintings and uh, the Tipolo paintings are on the residence. And the Tipolo painting is, uh, by many ar artists, would argue that it's even greater than the Sistine Chapel. Oh, wow. Um, and the residence was bombed, and the painting itself, and it's a massive painting, so it, it takes up it takes up a whole section of the residence. Mm. Um, that painting, that that those frescoes were were they, they were almost going to be lost because of rain and so forth. And John Davis Skilton, a young uh, a young uh, lieutenant with no military bearing and a, a very soft spoken very soft spoken man, mm. um, was able to do the miraculous. He was able to. Uh, work with engineering, army engineering units. He was assisted in his efforts by a German architect, Albert Beausoleil, and they were able to find the material to cover the residence, which in turn saved the Tipolo frescoes. Wow. And Skil that is one, one major thing that Skilton did, but he did many other things. Skilton worked tirelessly to repatriate art that was that was stolen, he worked tirelessly to help uh, uh, protect buildings that were damaged, and those buildings and uh, and and their beautiful uh, interiors are still there, there for everyone to see. And John Davis Skilton, um, someone who had no interest in going to Germany in 1945, uh, by by October of 1945 when he was reassigned, when he had to go back home because his mother had died, he became an honorary citizen of Würzburg. Wow. And for the rest of his life, every year, Skilton and his partner, Skilton was gay, Skilton and his partner were invited to come back to Würzburg every year as, as guests of the city, and they participated in the Mozart Festival. Wow. And he became, not, o not only did Skilton receive Germany's highest honor, the, the, federal, uh, the federal German Cross of Service, which is similar to our, which would be similar to our Presidential Medal of mm -hmm. Honor, but he received, the, the, he was a, an honorary citizen of Würzburg. He what, received the Bavarian, that's the state, the Bavarian honors as well. And throughout his life, he was beloved. Um, school children would write him birthday cards. Wow. Um, uh, he is, he's just an incredible story that has, he has been forgotten for history. He has mm. largely been forgotten. Very little has been written about him. Some people have written these, uh, have been writing fictional novels where they bring Skilton in, but the history is not there. And I must admit that in some of the work from Posey, there was a lot of work. There were some art, some books that were written that mentioned Posey, but again, uh, th th historically inaccurate. And that's simply what I'm, so that's what I want to do. I want to tell the history right. of Skilton, but I also want to tell the history that he didn't do it alone. He worked with Albert Beausoleil. And so my German colleague, Dr. Roscoff, who actually came to campus last semester, spent two weeks here. Wow. Um, he and I are working on that project. He's working on the German side of the yeah. project, and I'm working on the U.S. side of the project because we really want to tell a story of, gosh, how enemies, right? We were enemies, and how we, after the war, saw a common cause to save, right. to, to protect 
you know, these precious buildings and, and artwork. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'd like to, I'd like to emphasize about this, the, the, the men and women who worked mm-hmm. a, a, around these buildings, the men and women who worked to save this art, they, they spent their entire career, um, uh, they, they spent their entire career looking and studying these arts and protecting and, and, and admiring the beauty of these structures. And so I want you to imagine, I want the listeners to imagine how they must have felt walking through these cities, these once princely cities, mm-hmm. as, uh, as Lincoln Kirsten would say, and see all of the destruction. And it must have been such a heartbreak for John Davis Skilton, who knew what, what Europe looked like bef- before the war and then had to see that. And yet they did their work. And as a result of that, they powered through. They were carrying an enormous emotional burden. And, and here we are, 80 years later, and look at all of these cities and these buildings. It would just be wonderful. And thankfully in their lives, Kirsten, Posey never made it back to Europe after the war. Kirsten did, Skilton did, as I said, and they were able to see the good that they did. And I think that's wonderful. But I, can't, I just yeah. can't imagine, I can't imagine what they were going through uh, after seeing all of this destruction, but they, yeah. but they, they did it. They, Absolutely. they did their, they did their work. Yeah. 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 Such an amazing story. And so many amazing people that were able mm-hmm. to do this work and, you know, see, see that there was stuff to be saved and significance in that saving yeah. and ties so well to our theme of this semester of bridging the past and the present, yeah. uh, for the present of the monuments men, they have saw the past in those artworks and knew that it needed to be saved for people to get to enjoy in the mm-hmm. future. So so, right. And then your work is bridging that past to our current present to <laughs> remind people of that uh, work and all of the things that went into making that art something that can still be enjoyed. Yeah. I think it's important. I think that uh, anyone who's following the news today, you know, it, it's tough. The world is a very, very difficult place. Mm-hmm. We, we know that. There, it's, it's, uh, there are some there, there's, there. It's really difficult. Right. But I, I want, I want, I'd like everyone to think about how difficult it was in 1944, mm. 1943, 1945. Um, there, we were in a global conflict, and, um, but we came from that. We, right. we, 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 we came out of that conflict, um, and we were able to create through American leadership. Uh, not only did obviously we we helped save art, mm-hmm. but we also we saved a continent, and we we didn't turn our back on our former enemies. Right. We stayed there. We occupied Germany. It was occupied. They were former enemies, but after the, the West German government was created with their constitution in 1949, we stayed there and provided protection against communist aggression. Um, and Stalin, Joseph Stalin, who was who had who had his he had his eye set not only on Germany, but he had his eye set on on all of Europe, and we stayed there. And as a result of that, look at look at the world that we have now. Look at Europe right now. I teach a course on the European Union. Germany and uh, France would would have wars all of the time. And now this is the longest peace that they've had <laughs> between the two. So it's, it's pretty incredible to yeah. see what we've been doing. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to go into our last questions of the hour with our trivia session uh, se- questions. So are you ready? Okay. Let's <laughs> do it. 
How many pieces of priceless art did Captain Posey and his colleagues discover were hidden in Nazi Germany for Hitler's Reichweid Museum, the Führer Museum, and his boyhood home of Linz, Austria? Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> oh, my goodness. 5,000-something? Where am I? I, I? Where's my count? I, I know I wrote it down somewhere. What did I? <laughs> it's a little un- under. They found more than six, uh, 6,500 paintings and many more drawings. 6,500. Okay. All right. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Just amazing. You that, guys, yeah. y'all, you know, you're talking to the guy who wrote it, and I don't even know the numbers. <laughs> oh, no, that was, that was close. It was, it was yeah, 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 just yeah. an amazing number. Yeah, super, yeah indeed. Super, yeah. yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so how many people served as Monuments Men during World War II? Approximately 350. Yeah. Approximately 350. They're men and women. Uh, the, the majority came from the United States, but uh, Great Britain, as I mentioned, and uh, France also. Rose Valland, who... Uh, in the film, uh, in the film, Kate Blanchett plays Rose Valland. She mm-hmm. was a, a, a hero. She um, she was she played a very important role because she knew what the Germans were stealing, and she provided that list to James Rorimer, who was oh, wow. the monuments officer for the Seventh Army. And there, and, and again, the film there was a little romance there between Rorimer and her. Probably didn't happen, but it's still watch the film. It's yeah. it's it's worth seeing. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's exactly right. We found that uh, according to the Met Museum's website, 345 men and women from 14 nations served yeah. as monuments right. there men. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. For our, the first of our last two questions, why is it important that we study history? Well, I think it's important that we study history because we need to know where we came from. I think it's very important. We can learn from the past, both good and bad. Um, it's incredible that if, if, if we do not have an understanding of where we are or where we were, we're not going to know where we're going. Right. And I think that is, that is so incredibly important. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then our final question that we always wrap up our, our sessions with, what advice do you have for current and future students of political science and history? Right. So, um, so I'm always reminded of this, and I remind my students, or when I'm sometimes recruiting students, I always say, I look at my class ring, and there are three words on the class ring, meaning that the university seal is on my class mm. ring, right? And the three words are, from the top, instruction, extension, and research. Mm. Now, that's, those are the three legs by which Auburn University, a land-grant university, stands. Well, what does it mean for a student? Mm. Instruction means go to class, show up to class, participate, read, be an active learner, right. okay? That's, that's instruction. Extension. Well, extension for a student would be service, mm. getting involved, putting together a nice program here on Weagle, <laughs> doing something, working, uh, do uh, you know, working with a week of service, uh, giving of your talents and of your time to make Auburn and the world around us a better place. So that's extension. And the third thing, and this is very important, research. I think it's very, very important that uh, that. It, political science students, history students, but not only. I think undergraduate research is a wonderful way to do this. And I know that uh, you don't have to be in the Honors College to do undergraduate research. I work with students all of the time. In fact, I, I just took on a, an undergraduate student who's helping me on, on the Skilton Project wow. yesterday. So those are the three things. That's my advice right there. Um, don't do like I did when I was an undergraduate. Engage Go to office hours, meet your faculty, 
all that good stuff. Right. 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's amazing advice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and so cool that you can tie it all back to uh, the three things that Auburn is all about. Yes, yeah, right, right, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right, to end, up, to end our hour, we owe some thank yous. Thank you so much, Dr. Harris, for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Yeah, of course. As always, thank you to the History Department and our faculty advisor, Dr. Scholz. Thank you for your support. We greatly appreciate it, as well as the Political Science Department for their, for their support and showing up on our radio hours sometimes. Thank you to the College of Liberal Arts for their support as well, and to our researcher, Colby, who helps us put our scripts together. Additionally, thank you to Weagle for letting us use their airtime and supporting us as podcast hosts. And lastly, thank you, dear listener, for listening to us and getting up and joining us bright in the morning or whatever time it is where you are. And we'll see you next week. Bye. See you next week. You've been listening to It's All History to Me, the show dedicated to exploring the people, places, and ideas of our past. Be sure to tune in next Thursday at 8 a.m. for more. But for now, keep it here on Weagle 91.1. See you next time.